I've been looking forward to this interview for, well, a long, long time. Judith Curry, Dr. Judith Curry's climate scientist. And I love to list this off as I did at the outset of the show. I mean, we're talking the author of, you know, whatever, 180 peer-reviewed article, a former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, Georgia, uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. The list is just too long, and I did it right at the top of the show, so I'm not going to go into it here, but that's why I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Dr. Curry, thanks so much for finding time for us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Mike. I look forward to this. Well, have you ever had a journey? You know, I, I want to go back to and just maybe help people understand, in your case, you went to, and this is my word, not yours, a darling of sort of the scientific community. I mean, you were recognized very early with prizes and awards and stuff like that, successful career. And then it seems to me you made the fatal mistake. You questioned the orthodoxy when it comes to climate change. Well, in a way, it's worse than that. Um, <clears throat> I questioned things that, you know, are well within the range of uncertainty of the UN climate assessment reports. My cardinal sin was to criticize the behavior of important people in the IPCC. Okay, and this came to a head. Um, You may recall Climate Gate. These were the unauthorized (laughs) emails. Yeah, let's remind people of what that is. I think it was 2008, 2009, you know, when they... November of 2009, a hacker got into the um, computers at University of East Anglia and revealed the emails of a whole bunch of IPCC authors. And it revealed all sorts of skulldudgery, including trying to evade Freedom of Information Act requests, get journal editors fired... Um, bypass the policies of the IPCC, um, you know, practices in terms of what could be referenced and, and all of these kind of things. It was just a bunch of skullduggery, you know, and I said, look, we need to do better. I mean, it was really embarrassing for the whole climate community, yes. you know, caught with their pants down, so to speak. Um, I said, we need to do better. We need to make all of our data publicly available. We need to be transparent about our methods we need to be more honest about uncertainty and pay more attention to trying to characterize it. And we need to avoid being overconfident in our conclusions. And finally, we need to be respectful of the people who are critical of our work. And if we think they're wrong, we should challenge them with good arguments. We shouldn't insult them or try to get them canceled you know so you know you would think that you know these are motherhood and apple pie kind of things but oh my gosh um my statements were met with complete silence at the community nobody in authority was speaking out other than the people who were caught with their pants down and they were trying to defend themselves oh but the science is fine um and this absolute silence until maybe about five months later when the uh, president of the National Academy of Science came out and said essentially what I did, you know, we need to do better. But it's complete silence from the IPCC. Um, and they said, well, what do we do about Judith Curry? You know, that's a real problem. And they were trying to complaining about all the media attention I was getting, this, that, and the other. And things really came to a head, and this is almost 
a year later that this would be 2011, maybe mm -hmm. no, somewhere in there. Um, I wrote a blog post on hiding the decline, criticizing an aspect of the hockey stick, um, you know, paleoclimate temperature graph where they had spliced two time series together in a way that I thought was very misleading. And so I said, you know, this is misleading. We shouldn't do this. What were they thinking kind of thing? Okay. And that was it because this involves Michael Mann. And then Michael Mann said, I know what to do with the Judith Curry problem. Let's just call her a denier. You know, let's can't, you know, she, she's put her in the, you know, throw her out of the tribe, put her in the group with all the cranks, and then we can completely dismiss her. And, you know, so that was pretty much the end. And everybody, oh, great, great idea. So everybody joined the fray and calling me, well, led by Michael Mann, you know, a climate disinformer, a denier, you know, every sort of bad name that you can think of. It's interesting to note, uh, contrary to your approach, when you first encountered, uh, let's call them skeptics. I don't like that. Just people who have questions and challenge, et cetera. But you, you uh, engaged with them immediately. Absolutely. And look at their response is let's have a ad hominem attacks so we don't have to engage. And that to me has been characteristic of the entire climate issue in that efforts made by name calling, by canceling, uh, by okay. discrediting, uh, you know, a conversation. And that's anti-science to me. Absolutely. You know, back in 2006, I began to be fascinated by the climate blogosphere. I mean, realclimate.org, Michael Mann was one of the founders, and they had a whole blog roll of all these other blogs, and I was following that, and I said, oh, wow, this is a wonderful way to communicate. Okay, so in August of 2006, I published a paper, Hurricanes and Global Warming, that got a lot of media attention, mm -hmm. and so then I, I said, okay, so I was going around to all the blogs that were talking about my paper. Okay, and I landed on climate audit, you know, and people were asking for my data and talking about the statistical analysis. I go, whoa, this is pretty interesting. Why have I never heard of this blog before? It's not on the real climate blog roll. Mm -hmm. Well, I soon realized that the proprietor of the blog was Steve McIntyre, who was the yeah. arch enemy of Michael Mann. Okay. And this was where all the criticism, uh, you know, the headquarters for criticizing the hockey stick. And so, you know, I, I was just, I interacted with them for quite a bit and quite regularly, you know, in the comments, debating with them. I wrote a few guest posts and I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and, and the people on the other side, you know, were cheering me on. Oh, Judith Curry is giving them hell over a climate audit, you know, bravo. But I came to understand them and their perspectives and appreciate there are a lot of people on that, you know, participating in that who have very good mathematical and statistical skills and, you know, <laughs> far better than mine and far better than Michael Mann's. And so, you know, I was paying good attention to them. So when ClimateGate struck, you know, with these things posted on Climate Audit, I was on the phone with Steve McIntyre. We're talking, what do we do? How do we try to calm this down? And that's what motivated me writing these essays, criticizing the IPCC and the behavior of those scientists. So, I mean, that's the near-term history, but... Um, 
you know, they set out to, you know, to sabotage me. Um, and in many ways they were successful. Um, <laughs> if you, back in the day, say around 2013, if you would Google Judith Curry, you would see, you know, the things that show up. Judith Curry, climate denier, climate heretic, Judith Curry turns on her colleagues, you know, you'd see, you know, a whole mm -hmm. page of this stuff. And so I was looking for other positions. I wanted to get out of Georgia Tech. They, they had made things very uncomfortable for me. So headhunters thought I was a great candidate. I went to interview for some big jobs. And at the end of the day, you know, they said, you're a great candidate in many ways, but you're never going to get hired because if you Google Judith Curry and all the stuff yeah. shows up, you know, what university administrator is going to hire you? So I saw the writing on the wall and I said, okay, you know, I could have stayed around and sucked up my big salary at Georgia Tech, but that's not who I am. So I resigned and I, I'm now full-time in the private sector, my own company, Climate Forecast Applications Network. Um, a couple of things, just very quickly. I mean, hasn't the hockey stick been completely discredited now? I mean, not just now, but I mean, for quite a while. Okay, like, well, yeah. okay. the methodology behind it has been largely discredited. There have been teams of paleoclimate scientists getting together to do new reconstructions. And there was this group who put together a more realistic reconstruction. And then this group split into two, <laughs> okay? One that was, you know, working to refine the more realistic reconstructions and the other half that went back to the old hockey stick style of analysis. Mm -hmm. So the, the point of it is, is that there's a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of what the global temperature was back then. We have historical records, we have regional um, paleoclimate proxies, but in terms of trying to make a statement about what the global temperatures were back then, colossal amount of uncertainty. So, I mean, they were so overconfident of what they were doing back in 1998, um, just unbelievable. But again, that's such a key point, though, because the public has been fed uh, a level of certainty that I don't think is merited by uh, our science, and including the modeling. Oh, my gosh, we're, we're acting like modeling is like taking a temperature of somebody in the room with okay. you. All right. So, so we, we can blame this on the politicians. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the policy cart has been way out in front of the scientific horse from the very beginning of all this. I mean, back in 1992, we had an international climate treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate mm -hmm. Change, to prevent dangerous anthropogenic um, warming by eliminating fossil fuel emissions. This was before we had any idea what was going on with the climate, not to mention the socioeconomic consequence of attempting this, you know, on short time horizons. So, you know, the UN put out, you know, frame this as a global problem. We need a global solution. And in order to push this forward, we need a global consensus of scientists. So the IPCC was, you know, mandated to find a consensus about dangerous human-caused climate change. They basically manufactured a consensus on all this, you know, under the direction, request, insistence of their bosses, <laughs> you know, the UN. So we ended up with this very narrow framing of the problem completely ignored the role of natural climate variability, assumed that all warming um, 
was bad, um, mm -hmm. completely ignoring the impacts um, and focusing only on one policy response. So <laughs> this very, very narrow framing of this colossally complex, uncertain and ambiguous problem, which has brought us to the silliness <laughs> in this whole issue that we see today. I, I would think, though, I want to just reemphasize your point that does, seems to get overlooked. When they presented the problem, they didn't have the scientific backing, you know, to elaborate. But they only considered one policy solution. To me, that's, uh, you know, so damning. But a lot of people don't understand that. It wasn't an either or. We could have had a lot of policy choices, at least to debate, but we weren't debating at that point. We still aren't debating, you know. And I just think that's, you can drive a truck through. Uh, that, but I, I want to come back to the IPCC because I don't think people appreciate. And I'm saying uh, I'm sitting on the outside, but I've read the reports, and the first thing that jumped out is which politician wrote it. Now that may be a glib way of saying it, but I think people are shocked when they find out that final "let's take action" report uh, isn't written by scientists. It's written by bureaucrats, you know, who are aligned with the politicians. It's not a scientific document. Okay. Um in the Working Group One report on the physical basis of climate change, if you go into the bowels of the report, there is some good science. Okay, mm -hmm. not enough, but there is some good science. Um, the summary for policymakers, again, is essentially written by the policymakers, um, and they cherry pick things. And if you only look since 1970, you know this has gotten worse. But if they forget to tell you that if you look back to 1930, things were worse then, you know, that kind of cherry picking. Um, and the IPC, even the summary for policymakers is relatively tame. I mean, it's cherry picked, it's slanted, it's spun. But then when you hear the UN officials to talk, talk about it, you know, code red, we're on the highway to hell, existential threat, you know, about these things that, you know, if you really dig into it, you know, it's hard. Is, is this really all that dangerous? Um, you know, that they're spinning uh, in their statements. And then, of course, this gets amplified by the media. And then what, what the um, public consumes is just a bunch of political spin. And, and I mean, obviously, it's successful but when I see school children out there, you know, uh, protesting climate change. And I don't think they could go one minute with me. But that's how I feel about most politicians. I could give me one minute. I'll undress them. But they, but they know so little about it. And there's so many big issues that you can drive a truck through. And I think their lack of sophistication, just, so you know, I talk about this all the time because it brings it down to a level. You didn't need any sophistication to know you need backup for renewable energy. That takes nothing but <laughs> the sun doesn't shine every day. That's all it would have taken. But I think that's representative of their thought process. Well, no, it, all this energy stuff, I mean, it's being voted in by politicians. Yeah. Um, say New York now has a mandate, a very aggressive mandate to go to 100% renewable energy on a very short time scale. Okay, uh, New York, I mean, they have some decent hydropower, you know, which helps, but they're aggressively getting rid of their, not just their coal, not just their gas, but also their nuclear. Okay. I guess I should say, do they not know where Germany is? You know, didn't didn't <laughs> okay, Germany but, feature that okay. movie first? I know. Okay, so I sit on a committee of the New York system reliability corporation, something like that, mm -hmm. to 
um, extreme weather events. So we've been putting together some stress test case studies, you know, based on historical data and, and this, that, and the other about, you know, like, oh, <laughs> you know, 17 days when the wind doesn't blow and it's the middle of winter, where's your solar? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. and the temperatures are really, really cold. Now, what are you doing? I'm praying that New Jersey has a lot of nuclear power that they can transmit into New York. Um, you know, you know, like it, it just makes no sense. But but I'm on a committee with engineers, you know, and they they sort of get it. But the point is, the politicians aren't asking the engineers, <laughs> you know, what they should be doing. They're just making this political decisions and these mandates, and the engineers have to figure out how to, you know. <laughs> provide electricity on a re reliable basis and keep the you know frequency wind and solar are terrible for free you know intermittency is one thing but they really screw up the frequency control because yes. uh, they're asynchronous and, and they need to add all sorts of asynchronous converters and you need to add all this stuff to it and it gets really really expensive to do and nobody has demonstrated that you can do a hundred percent you know wind and solar based electricity system you know places like iceland and costa rica they have lots of hydropower and geothermal okay that's how they can be 100 percent renewable but in the absence of those kind of resources you know wind and solar are not going to cut it so i mean and south australia is farthest along of anybody in terms of trying to do this and i've been following closely as to what they're doing there's a number of articles uh, on, on my blog, climate, etc., judithcurry.com, by transmission engineers and a, yeah. and a grid operator from New Zealand who's been writing the articles on my blog about how and why this isn't working. So, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a it's political decision. It's, it's misguided in so many ways. And it's introducing so many risks, not just to, I mean, our whole society depends on electricity, everything yeah. that we do. Okay, and this is, if we're adding instability and higher costs into our electric utility system, we're damaging our economy, we're reducing our vulnerability, we're increasing our vulnerability to extreme weather events and so on and so forth. I mean, for what? <laughs> yeah. in, a, in, in a futile attempt, to slow down the slow creep of global warming. It just makes absolutely no sense. Well, I, I'm sitting here in Canada right now. We contribute apparently about 1.6% to 1.5% of global emissions. And uh, we have canceled uh, really tens of billions of dollars in, uh, in fossil fuel projects, natural gas and, and uh, oil. And my question always is, what do we get in return? Because it sure as hell didn't impact the climate. And what's a bit embarrassing for the government is the finance, current finance minister, Dep De uh, deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, made it clear in an interview with the Financial Times that Canada can't even move the dial. No matter what we do, we can't move the dial. And yet we're prepared to give away tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, jobs, et cetera. You know, the list is a long one. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Let, I want to come back to the extreme weather events, though. Now, you, as you said, you first became, and again, obviously people knew you in the community, the scientific community, but your hurricane paper that, um, from what I can understand, from my, my background is, of course, the media cherry-picked what you said in that paper. But I want to maybe get a, a simpler com a comment on 
every fire that broke out, and it's a tragedy in some areas, you know, obviously, but it's got to be climate change. Everything is climate change. You've got a flood. It's climate change. We got this. It's climate change. And I mean, it takes two seconds to get that explanation into the media. Okay. Well, it represents, okay, first, even the IPCC acknowledges that there's, you know, very little relationship between a warming temperature and worsening extreme events, apart from heat waves, you know, yeah. floods, droughts, hurricanes, you know, all this other stuff, you know, there's not much there. And on the benefit side of it, we're getting fewer cold, extreme cold events. And there's nine times greater mortality from cold events and from heat events. I mean, this is buried. <laughs> you know, the good news is that overall mortality is lessened in a warmer climate. You know, <laughs> where have you heard that? Well, you haven't yeah. probably. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, again, again, I'm in Canada. We wouldn't mind a little more warm weather throughout the year. And this is the thing about winners and losers. I mean, Canada, Siberia, northern China, I mean, they would certainly benefit from warmer temperatures. It would increase agricultural productivity, etc. I mean, in the U.S., people like warm, they hate warm winters, okay? So they're leaving Illinois and New York, and they're moving to Texas, Florida, and Arizona, which are southern warm states. But this whole issue about politicians blaming, you know, all you know, the Maui fires or the Libyan floods or the the floods in New York City. These are some recent ones. Oh, it's climate change. They they throw up their hands and they can't do anything. Well, it's it it's an out. You know, it's a it's a sleazy cheap out where they can deflect the blame for their mm -hmm. bad decisions in terms of land use policy, infrastructure, emergency management, warnings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on climate change. And the only thing we can do is stop burning fossil fuels. You know, so, so it, it's just a convenient out for poor governance and poor decision-making. Uh let me come to, you know, here's the problem for individuals, you know, and people who aren't versed in necessarily immersed in the science, et cetera. Where do we get good information? Because I don't <laughs> trust, I don't, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You're laughing because that's impossible. But I mean, I know, you know, by simply doing the work, I hear, I read what the media says is one in the latest IPCC report. I don't have to look very far to say, wait a second, it didn't actually say that. Or wait but, a second, you've missed a very important conclusion here because it's a, a pure agenda getting pushed. I don't think there's much debate on that. So I'm just wondering, and again, we could probably talk hours on this particular thing, but you can give me a quick snapshot of what do we well, do as individuals? Okay, the working group one report from the IPCC, forget the summary for policymakers, there is some good information in there. Okay, it's a starting yeah. point. Um, in terms of reliable information, allow me to make a plug for my own information sources. Yeah. I have a blog, Climate Etc., judithcurry.com, where we discuss a whole range of climate-relevant issues, fundamental science, um, the energy transition. You know, I have a, a great group of people who contribute mm -hmm. posts. I mentioned the previous ones, you know, about the electricity grid yes. and things like that, and also about policy, 
and politics and adaptation and a whole range of things like that. And so open it up for discussion. And my blog is probably the only one out there on this topic where people from both sides of the debate show up to shout it out. Um, I try to keep the insult, you know, I, I moderate to remove insults, but there's a real debate. There was an incredible one a couple of weeks ago um, by a, um, a Greek hydrologist, Demetrius Kousianis, who was talking about the, the carbon dioxide budget and the uncertainties and the way he was reasoning about it, which is quite contrary to what you normally see. And I think this has almost 600 comments. We have all sorts of um, scientists and other mm-hmm. interested people with technical background discussing, challenging, and Demetrius is there responding to all these questions. Yeah. And you can't find that anywhere else, okay, on the blog. The other thing, if you're just starting out, I mean, there are a few good books out there. First, I have to plug my own, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. Um, It integrates, you know, the, the politics and social psychology of what's going on with an understanding of climate models and what, we might expect in the 21st century. And and a, the third part has a deep foundation in risk science, um, which goes into how, we, how badly we've mischaracterized risk, how we should go about doing it and how we should you know, manage it. Um, a couple of other books out there I can recommend, Unsettled yeah. by, by Stephen Coonan and False Alarm by Bjorn Lomborg. I mean, those are two recent books that I can yeah. recommend. I mean, the, between my book, Kunin's and Lomborg's book, we cover you know, the full spectrum of, I think, the relevant territories. So I can recommend those books. Um, well, I, I can, sorry, I, I can recommend Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. The other thing I really enjoyed about the book, but let me just say is it is, I, I'm the type of person, okay, where's your source? What do you know? How did you get that? Where does it come from? And my goodness, is that well supported through footnotes? You know, when I read the footnotes or, I, or something that I'm not aware of and I just want to go, okay, so give me more. Oh, the book is brilliant at, at giving me more. So you've got a nice read of what, 230 pages or something, and you get the footnote. So I, I want to plug that because I think this is what's missing. Um, yeah. you know, 1,500 footnotes, which direct really? you to a range of sources. Um, yeah, I, 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 someone emailed, told me it was taking him forever to get through my book because he was zinging. Yeah. You know, through all the footnotes on each chapter. Oh, wow, I didn't know that, you yeah. know. So. No, that's what I enjoyed. The other thing, and I, I, I forgive me, I should have said this up front to make sure people are clear. You're not saying there's not climate change or there's not man influenced on climate. I want to make yeah. sure that that's the, you know, they say those things, not just about you, but about someone else, the whole denier label is to, so they don't have to discuss it. So we okay. said, you know, or things like uh, there's a 97% consensus of scientists, you know, really, you know, really, it's just such nonsense. Okay. Here's what we know, the facts that nobody disagrees on. Yeah. Global temperature has increased overall since about 1860. Humans emit CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. CO2 and these other greenhouse gases have an infrared emission spectra and act to warm the planet. 
nobody questions any of those things. However, those three facts don't tell us anything about the most consequential issues. These include how much of the recent warming is caused by humans versus natural variability, how much climate or how will climate change in the 21st century, and whether human-caused warming is dangerous. I mean, there's widespread disagreement and uncertainty on those um, factors. And then, of course, you know, the relevant policy issue, um, the issue as to whether this rapid transition um, away from fossil fuels and toward wind and solar energy is overall going to make us better off or worse off, both now and in the future. And it's pretty clear it's going to make us worse off, uh, which is a case that I make in the risk assessment part of my book. Yeah. Uh, let me just, uh, by the way, you may have caught it, but there is a, a recent paper out of Statistics Norway. And Canadians will understand we have uh, Statistics Canada. And their question was, to what extent are temperature levels changing due to greenhouse gas emissions? But here's the conclusion. The results imply that the effect of man-made CO2 emissions does not appear to be sufficiently strong to cause systematic changes in the pattern of the temperature fluctuation. In other words, our analysis indicates that with the current level of knowledge, it seems impossible to determine how much of the temperature increase is due to emissions of CO2. Well, that's a pretty startling conclusion. But again, my point is it's not in the public. I just want to talk about it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not pretending to have the scientific background to say yay or nay to that, but yeah. it's not well, discussed. I, I glanced at that paper. I saw it mentioned on Twitter. Mm -hmm. My understanding, they were focused on looking at the temperature data in, in Norway rather yeah. than global Sorry, temperature. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing about it is these are statisticians. They certainly know how to deal with data. And, but they don't have any skin in the game in terms of the climate debate, you know, so they don't come into it with preconceived notions or I have to do it yes. this way in order, you know, so they had no skin in the game. <laughs> so they can, you know, just call it like they see it. And I thought, yeah. oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what an advantage. Uh, you know, I remember when uh, you published a public uh, letter when you uh, resigned. And uh, I just thought it was so telling uh, you're talking about uh, research and other professional activities are professionally rewarded only if they are channeled in certain directions approved by a politicized academic establishment. You know, and, and this is one of the other challenges that funding, I mean, there's, there's tons of people who disagree with aspects. I'm talking, sorry, not tons of people, scientists who disagree mm -hmm. with many aspects or some aspects of the whole sort of, let's call it climate agenda or the, mm -hmm. the narrative that we're getting fed, but they don't dare speak out. Because, I mean, good luck getting a funding paper, you know, your paper or your research well, funded. I mean, the whole academic e ecosystem is just, you know, promoting this issue. I mean, the professional societies are advocates for this. These are the people who publish the journals, mm -hmm. you know, and their ed editors are gatekeepers. I mean, they don't even send contrary papers out for review. <laughs> they just get... Nope, sorry, wow. not interested. Um, the, the external recognition from professional science, who, who gets societies, who gets the big awards, um, who gets the big funding, funding, awards, publication, and prestige journals. This is what 
um, gets you promotions at the university, gets you big salaries at the university, attracts donor funding for big institutes at the universities. So, you know, the universities have figured out, you know, what, what side of yeah. the bread, you know, is, is the butter, is the butter on. So, well, I mean, there you have it. You have this whole, um, complex academic, you know, political, economic, university, industrial complex surrounding this whole issue, you know, with reinforcing each other, not to mention the media. Um, so there you have it. You know, this is a big <laughs> juggernaut, oh, yeah. a big juggernaut. And, and there's many reasons, but one is there's an agenda about that global control of people that we also saw in COVID. Uh, uh, and again, I'm not saying yes or no to any aspect, but I know that we weren't allowed to ask questions. It wasn't invited. It wasn't the scientific, uh, you know, public discussion. We've heard from many, many uh, medical uh, people, medical scientists, uh, echoing that same sentiment. But that's why I think it's incumbent upon people to educate themselves. And, and that's why I want to give a, a, another shout out to the book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. And I, I'm just sitting here laughing, thinking about, I think P.J. O'Rourke had a great line about that. And he was looking at a protest of, of young people, you know, very vehement uh, climate change advocates. And he says, they're prepared to do anything to save the planet, except read a book. So in, in that case, we, we, I think we have to sit there and own some responsibility and do some reading on our part. You've certainly done your part uh, to educate the public. And I just want to say thank you so much for finding time for us. And I'll put you on the spot because it's always embarrassing if you say no, you know, right, you know while we're here broadcasting. Said, I got to get back. There's so many other aspects I want to talk to you about. It's obviously a monstrous size subject and uh, you handle it so beautifully. So I'll put you on the spot and say, let's visit again in the near future. Oh, I'd be delighted to. Great stuff. Thank you, Judith, for finding time.